Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. And if you're new here and we haven't met yet, uh, please, after the service, introduce yourself to me. I'd love, I'd love to get uh, to know you. To bring you up to speed, um, we are in a series uh, in the book of Philippians. And uh, uh, we did an overview a couple of weeks ago, and then Matt Nix, who's home with sick kiddos today, uh, preached last week, and man, did he bring it last week. What a great job Matt Nix did. Uh, we are incredibly, incredibly blessed uh, by both uh, Matt and Tom in their preaching of the word to us, and, and Josh Cass, who we have not uh, talked into preaching yet, but I'm sure a day is coming at uh, some point, but you know what? He does, he does preach to us through song, uh, the, the gospel through song uh, every single uh, Sunday. In addition to that, um, you all remind me and each other throughout the week uh, about who Jesus is and what he has done, that he is advancing his kingdom, and that he is in control. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for our church you know, um, we're still growing. Uh, we're all still a bunch of sinners, which is uh, why we need to be uh, um, reminding each other of who Jesus is and, and what he has done for us. And over the last few years, we've done a lot of talking about what kind of church we want to be, what kind of church we want to become. We've done a lot of praying and planning as far as that goes, and, and we've probably put, uh, we, we have put a lot more time uh, this, this year uh, into praying and, and planning uh, to cultivate, uh, I, I think, a culture that would describe us as the church that God's called us to be. And we want to be, faith, be faithful in that. And, um, you know, as we've been working through that and talking through that and thinking through that and, and planning through that, there is one word that comes to my mind uh, as uh, throughout the years and especially lately. Uh, when we think about uh, the culture that we're trying to cultivate around here. One word that I think describes uh, how we want to function as a church, not just to each other, but also in our community, especially in tumultuous times like this. And that one word is grace. It's grace. You know, it seems like everyone that I talk to in, in, in uh, one way or another does, describes a desire to belong to a community of grace. Everyone longs for grace. Now, not everyone is willing to give grace, but I guarantee you every single person wants to receive grace. So the question is, as we're thinking through this and praying through this and talking through this and planning through this, the question is, what does a community of gracious people look like? So that it's not just some nice-sounding word, some, some nice-sounding dream. I mean, down to earth, what does a community of grace look like? Well, I think a result, one of the results, there's lots we could say, but one of the results would be that our family and our friends and our neighbors and visitors and people who meet us for the first time, whether they are Christians or not, whether they have our church background or not, would enjoy being with us. It would be life-giving for them to be among us. 
Instead of it being, you know, an obligation, it would be a delight. Instead of it being, you know, a drain, it would be encouraging. And so, a critical characteristic of a community of grace has got to be joy. It's got to be a genuine, unshakable joy. See, (laughs) joyful people are great to be around, aren't they? I mean, I'm sure there's some people that come to your mind going, going, man, I love them so much, they're just so full of joy. And then we all think of people who are like, oh my goodness, they have no joy, they're going to suck the life out of them. And that person might be you, (laughs) you know what I mean? It just might be. It's funny because it's true, (laughs) Right? See, joyful people are great to be around because, you know, they give thanks instead of complain. Instead of focusing on people's weaknesses, they focus and highlight their strengths. They refuse to to cave in to being self-absorbed, and instead, they, they serve others selflessly and sacrificially and enthusiastically. They're free to, uh, to enjoy life instead of taking themselves too seriously. Growing in grace always will include growing in joy. But there is a formidable obstacle, and it's hit us all, and that is hard times. Man, nothing can, like, sap the joy out of our hearts and lives like hard times. You know what I'm talking about? You going through hard times right now? I know lots of people are going through hard times right now. Anything in particular come to your mind? I mean, think about it right now. Just don't, don't just sit there, uh, listen to me politely with a smile on your face. I mean, think of something that you're wrestling with right now. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this. Because I'm telling you, this applies to that particular situation. Even if you don't think it does, I'm telling you it does. And here's what I'm learning. Um, I, the older I get, and I'm old now. I am for, I, that's right. Did, some, did, some, did I just get an amen? Wow. You know, in this church, the amens come at the weirdest times, man. I'm like, that'll get an amen. Nope. I'm old. Amen. All <laughs> right? The older I get, I realize that the hard times don't stop. Ever. In the first service, I mean, I mean, we have people in their 80s and 90s, and they're like, that's right. They don't stop. So we can't sweep that, we just can't, we can't sweep that reality under the rug. It doesn't work. We got to deal with it. We got to face it. So the question is how? How can we deal with hard times and still be filled with an unshakable, indestructible joy? Well, God answers that question. In this letter to the Philippians. Here's the Apostle Paul who has hard times on top of hard times, on top of more hard times, and on top of even more hard times. He's got physical hard times. He's an old man in a dungeon in chains. And he's got emotional hard times. Nero's on the throne, and Paul could be executed tomorrow. 
He's got relational hard times. He's away from the people that he loves dearly, people that love him dearly. In addition to that, some so-called Christian preachers are trying to stir up trouble for Paul while he is locked up. And he's got spiritual hard times too because Paul, God has called Paul to preach the gospel and to plant churches and here he is locked up in chains and the question is, has God forgotten about him? Has God deserted him? God's given me a calling. What am I doing sitting here rotting away in a dungeon? Now Paul's hard times are probably a little bit more difficult than than most of ours. But what is Paul doing in the middle of his hard times? He is rejoicing. And he writes this letter that's referred to as the letter of joy. How in the world does he do that? Well, here's the short answer, all right? The short answer, if you're taking notes, is this. He does it by looking at his hard times through the lens of Christ. Now, that may sound like a a theory, but we're going to bring that down to earth, all right? What does that mean? Well, we're going to be looking at this morning by looking at several things, and the first thing is this. To answer it, we ask another question, and that question is, what are the results What are the results? I think we see four results here um, in Paul's life. And the first result seems to be a resolve to rejoice no matter what. A resolve to rejoice no matter what. Did did you notice what Paul says near the end of verse 18? He writes this. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. You're reading the whole passage, you kind of skim over that. But wait a second. What's important for us to see here is that he is using future tense right? He says, I will rejoice. What's that all about? Well, Paul starts this section by rejoicing that God is using his current hard times being locked away in a horrible dungeon to advance the gospel. He is rejoicing that God is using his imprisonment to advance the gospel, meaning the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing. He's using his, his, his imprisonment to advance. God is using Paul's imprisonment to advance God's kingdom of grace, and he is rejoicing. And he mentions two ways the gospel has been advanced. First, we see that he ministered to non-believers. In verse 13, as a result of his hard times, as a result of his, him being locked up, he says this, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, the people are making sure he doesn't get away, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And then secondly, in verse 14, believers have been encouraged. Look what he says. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Then in verse 15, he he adds this. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, not sincerely, but, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now check this out. At at the end of verse 18, 
there's, there's a shift. I, I don't know if you caught it when we read through it the first time. There's a shift. It's kind of like it, 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 the shift is so distinct, it's almost as if. I mean, at least I can imagine Paul putting down his pen and just kind of sitting back, maybe staring into space, maybe thinking beyond his current circumstances and, and thinking about how eventually things are going to get worse. He's thinking about how things are going to get worse. Like standing trial before Nero and the very likely possibility that he's going to be executed. This is the, you know, when, this is the shift. I mean, I imagine after a few moments, after thinking, that, that a, a, a resolve gets stirred up in his heart as he thinks about how things are going to get worse. And then, then maybe even a smile comes to his face, right? A, a peaceful but determined smile. And then he leans forward and he picks up his pen and he writes verse 18 in light of thinking how things are going to get worse. And he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Even if or when things get worse, I will rejoice. Man, the Apostle Paul views his future hard times, like his execution, through the lens of Christ. And he has a resolve. He has a determination. He has a sanctified stubbornness to rejoice no matter what. What he does is he makes up his mind now. He determines ahead of time. That whatever it is that will happen to him in the future, no matter how bad it is, he will rejoice. And here's the point. Joy is so much more than an emotion. It is so much more than an emotion. You're going through a difficult time right now. You might not be happy about it, but I'm telling you right now, according to Paul, you can still have joy. Joy is so much more than an emotion. The late Reverend Jack Miller is a, was a pastor and an author that's, that's challenged me and has encouraged me. Uh, check, out, check out what he writes. He says this. He says, when I had cancer, the greatest battle I had was not to preserve life, but to practice joy. I speak of the practice of joy because joy is more than an emotion. It is also a way of living and acting. On one side, it is saying no to self-pity, fear, and passivity. On the other hand, it is a series of actions that move from self-preoccupation to caring for others, from inwardness to humor, from being a victim to, to being an actor on the stage of life. The chief action is to seek grace from God to serve others with enthusiasm. I don't know that I could say that right now if that hit me. I've seen people who have this heart, who have this perspective. Nothing inspires you more than somebody who is joyful in the midst of just the worst circumstances. It is so much more than an emotion. Whatever it is that you're going through, however bad things are going to get, 
even under the most difficult circumstances, joy is an empowered choice. It is a choice empowered by the reality of who Jesus is, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. It is a choice that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is a choice empowered by looking at your hard times through the lens of Christ. Secondly, looking at our hard times through the lens of Christ gives us a whole a whole new definition of success. I asked you this a couple of weeks ago. What is it that comes to your mind when you think of success? What is it that you wish you were successful in? And you, maybe you're working hard towards that and sacrificing to make something uh, a, a reality, that success a reality. And we talked about a few common ideas a few weeks ago. It could be, you know, success at work. It could be a, the perfect ham, family. It could be your health. It could be a good life. I mean, it could even be success in ministry. We all have our own idea. But, time out. We can't ignore what Paul's saying here. We cannot ignore his definition of success given to him by God. What is his definition of success? Look at verse 20. He says that it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Failure for Paul, according to this verse right here, failure for Paul is to be ashamed. Now, we think of shame in terms of, you know, failure at, at school or failing, failing socially or failing at work or, or failing, at, you know, in our finances or failing in raising our kids or failing in our marriage or looking bad in the eyes of others. You know what? Paul knows that kind of shame. It, right there in, in Philippi, he was arrested, stripped, he was beaten in public, thrown into jail. And what's he do? He sings hymns of praise. See, obviously, obviously, Paul doesn't fear that kind of shame. That is not failure to Paul. See, shame for Paul is, is to act or speak as if he were ashamed of Jesus. Shame for Paul would be to complain about his circumstances because that would be to believe that Jesus is either not in control or that he is not loving. Shame for Paul would be to stand before Nero and waver in his commitment to King Jesus. Shame for Paul would be to respond to his difficult circumstances with anger and fear and self-pity or despair. Shame for Paul is living as if Jesus were not enough. His definition of success is living and dying in a way that honors Jesus. Paul looks through the lens of Christ and he says, you know what? Success for me is to live and die in a way that demonstrates that no matter what happens in life or death, that Jesus is enough. I got to tell you, there's incredibly freedom in that. Incredible freedom in that. If we attach our hearts to success or, or circumstances, I mean, our hearts will get dragged all over the place because our circumstances are all over the place. If we attach our heart 
to Christ, who is our rock, the same yesterday, today, and forever. When we do that, we have a joy that is indestructible. Third, looking at hard times through the lens of Christ gives us an incredibly, incredibly powerful purpose in life. Look what Paul says in verse 21. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we see the power of that purpose in two ways. I mean, it, first of all, it causes this intense dilemma for the Apostle Paul. In the, in the next verse, he says this. Um, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, there is one thing about the Apostle Paul when you read his letters, and that's this, that he is pretty clear about where he stands on the issues. But here, I mean, it's, it's like he's torn. He says, I, I don't know what is more important for me, uh, uh, you know, whether to live or, or, or I don't know which one I want more, to live or to die. Now, this reminds us of the famous question posed by Hamlet. Remember this question, this famous question? To be or not to be, right? Hamlet's question came from fear. He was asking the question because he's wondering what's worse, to live or to die, he considers suicide because living might be worse. But Paul says, which is better? To live will mean fruitful labor, and, and that's better for you, he says. I, I love you so much, and I want to see you all grow in Christ. But honestly, I got to tell you, truthfully, I cannot wait to be with Christ because that is far better. Not because death is good, it is not. But on the other side of death is a fuller experience of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Secondly, this purpose, purpose is powerful because it's the only purpose that makes any sense. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I asked how, how we might finish this sentence. I mean, if we evaluated our lives and each other's lives, how would we finish this sentence? For me to live is blank, if we were to be honest. Maybe not consciously, but maybe subconsciously, and it just gets played out in the way that we live our lives and according to the priorities that we set, either, either intentionally or, or unintentionally. And when we look at our lives, we look at our hearts, we might finish this sentence by saying, for me to live is money and possessions, and to die would, would be to leave empty-handed. To live is acceptance and, and influence and popularity. To die is to be forgotten. To live is, is feeling good no matter what the cost, and to die is to pay the cost. To live is my family, and that one sounds so good. To live is my family, and to die is to be without them. And we know as we say it and we put it in those terms, we know that doesn't last. There's only one way to complete the sentence that makes any sense. There's only one answer that will last 100 years or 500 years or 10,000 years. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
That is the only answer that lasts because when we die on the other side of death is a fuller experience of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. That lasts for eternity. And fourth, looking at hard times through the lens of Christ gives us a radical commitment to people. You're not just nice to people. It's a radical commitment to people. In verse 25, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory or rejoice in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now look, maybe you've heard this phrase before. I mean, to li- you know, for me to live is Christ. And maybe you've just never done the hard work of wrestling with that and figuring out how that gets played out in your life. I'm telling you right here and right now, this is not just some nice-sounding religious theory, all right? This is not some airy-fairy, you know, mystical escapism that's, it's not, you know, being so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. To live for Christ include, always includes Living for people. So that people who don't believe in Christ might come to know Christ. And people who do know Christ, who do believe, might grow in their knowledge of Christ and experience of Christ and belief in Christ and trust in Christ. You know what? The reason there is so much joylessness in our culture among Christians and non-Christians is that there is a total preoccupation with selfishness. What's best for me? What will make me feel more secure? What will make me feel more happy? What is it that, that I want to do? Now, we all know, we can all agree on this that there's no such thing as a life with no hard times, right? But when we're living for Christ and serving people, what we end up saying, and even in the midst of hard times, is that God has a purpose that is much bigger than the hard times that I'm going through right now. God has a long-term plan, and it's called eternity, and it goes way beyond the here and now. So... We march on. I want all of us to know this morning that that life is available to us in Christ right here, right now. God is saying to us, You can grow in grace. You can live for Christ. You can live for others and have a joy no matter what. Why? Because Jesus is enough. See, that is a result of looking at hard times through the lens of Christ. And as Matt Nix reminded us last week in his passage, that he who began a good work in you and me will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. We can bank on that. Now the question is how, right? How does he build that into us? So, so it, I mean, so it's, so it's 
practically lived out in our lives? How do we look at our hard times through the lens of Christ? And that brings us to another question, which is, what do we need to make this a reality? I mean, what's looking at hard times through the lens of Christ mean? Well, it means this. I'll say it, then explain it. It means a new direction in our thinking, okay? Hang in there with me on this one. It is a radical different way of thinking. You know, we pointed out before that words like joy and rejoice appear 17 times in this very short little letter here that Paul writes to the Philippians, which is why it's called the letter of joy, right? But there are also words like remember and know and consider. Cognitive words, thinking words, reasoning words. You know how many times those show up? They show up at least 27 times in the short letter. And what, what's the point? The point is that joy has nothing to do with our circumstances. It has everything to do with how we think about our circumstances. Paul says You know, if we have lost our joy, the problem isn't our circumstances. The problem is our logic. The the problem is our focus. The problem is what we are meditating on. And and it's not just thinking about new information. It's thinking in in a whole new direction. In Philippians, God is making a major point by telling us to stop thinking the way we usually think because it's killing us. And to start thinking in a whole new way that will fill your heart and life uh, with joy. So first he says, it is not reasoning. We talk about this a lot around here, and I think it's important to kind of really drive this home. It is not reasoning from our hard times to Jesus. When we lose our joy, it's because this is how we usually think. Our hard times becomes our central reality. Our hard times becomes the lens through which we look at God. And then when we look through that mess of our hard times and we look at God, God God looks distorted, right? When that becomes our interpretation of Jesus, I mean, it's, it'll fill you with fear. And, it's, and it, really, it's a messed up view of Jesus. Because when we look at Jesus through the lens of our hard times uh, and it distorts Jesus, then we come to this conclusion based on the lens through which we are looking that, that Jesus doesn't really love me or he is not in, in control. I mean, if, if Jesus loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. And if he does love me, then I guess he's just not strong enough or powerful enough to help me. And so Jesus becomes absolutely irrelevant to our hard times. Now, I'm telling you, I know that most people won't blatantly say that. Maybe not even admit that to themselves, but you can pick up on it in the, in, in the state of our heart. God shows us that this thinking is in the wrong direction and it's sucking the life out of us. It's sucking the joy out of us. It's thinking in the wrong direction. So what's the right direction? It is not reasoning from hard times to Jesus. It's reasoning from Jesus to hard times. A whole new direction. 
You make Jesus your central reality. You make Jesus who he is and what he's done and what he's doing the lens through which you look at all of life. Make Jesus the lens through which we interpret our mess and have clarity on our mess. See, when Jesus is our starting point, what is it that we see? What we see is a king with scars. And in chapter 2, Paul shows us Christ crucified and exalted. And at the center of reality, King Jesus rules from his throne over every single detail of life. And our king humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross, to save us from sin, to save us from death, to save us from eternal judgment. And all we could ever earn was the wrath of God because we wanted to be king. But Jesus decided to take God's wrath upon himself out of sheer grace. And you know what that means? It means that he is both loving and strong. That is where you start. That's the lens through which you must look at the hard times that you're going through. Not just to persevere, but to have an unshakable, indestructible joy. When we reason from Jesus to our times, we see that God is advancing the gospel. God is advancing his good news. God is advancing his kingdom of grace. And set every wrong in the world right, including the mess. It's all over the news now. We don't know how specifically, and we, we usually can't see it. And this is going to be tough to hear, but I'm telling you right now, as a word of encouragement, you don't have to understand how specifically. You don't have to see how. It's a trust, it's a faith that says God's got this. He'll figure it out. In fact, he already has. Our king has an unwavering, determined, sacrificial love for us, and he is in absolute control of every situation. Do you believe that? What hard time are you going through this morning? What hard times are you anticipating? Maybe it's several things. Maybe it's a mess. Maybe you're filled with dread. My desire here is not to to, um, smack you down or condemn you for that. My desire is to point you to Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, what he's doing. Where are you at? Hard times at work, hard times at home. You have health problems, relational problems. Some of you know our preschool director, uh, Angie Winkler, right? Uh, This is Angie and and her uh, second oldest son, Caleb. Um, And if you're friends with her on Facebook, you know that on July 4th, Caleb got seriously hurt. I mean, dreadfully hurt. And after a couple of days, um, Angie posted this on Facebook. It's, it's a little bit long, but I think it's important for us 
to see what this looks like in real life. This, she posted this last week. She says, uh, the fireworks were over, or so I thought. My phone rang, and it was my son's best friend, Miss Angie. Caleb fell off the school roof. It was about 30 feet onto concrete. Are you kidding? No. My heart stopped beating for a minute, and I called my oldest son, Knox, hoping he was still there and could check on him. He wasn't. He already left. But he ran there, barefoot, beating my car. When I got there, I could hear pieces of various conversations as I ran by the groups of people still there. He fell off the roof? Did he die? Who is it? I turned down the corridor and saw him crumpled on the ground with medics and a small crowd around him. Knox ran to me, wrapped his arms around me and said, he's okay. I'm so thankful for that. I ran to Caleb and he was saying, I'm sorry, mom, I'm sorry. And relief washed over me that he could talk and he knew who I was until I saw the blood gushing from his nose and lip and the deformed arm dangling at his side, the swollen, deformed feet the medics had drawn black X marks on and his neck in a collar. He, he fell from up there, someone said. I looked up, and it was too high to fall from and be okay. My knees began to buckle. I cried out some unintelligible sound, and, and a medic jumped up and grabbed me and said, you can't do that now. He was right. I was surrounded by scared teenagers, all these little eyes on me. I didn't want to be strong, but who else was going to be? The medics had him on a stretcher and, and were loading him into the ambulance. We stood there watching, fearful, traumatized kids who thought their brother and friend had died, onlookers who didn't know what to do, a mom to take her, her first ambulance ride with a hurt child. There was literally nothing we could do. But there is someone who can do all things. He's going to be fine, I declared. Let's pray for him. And I held out my hands, and everyone came to join me. Random kids I, I'd never seen before asked to join in, and I prayed out loud for my son. And then I got in the ambulance, and I asked all of you on Facebook to pray, and you did. And friends, God heard our prayers and protected my son. And she says this, but what if he hadn't? I know God doesn't always heal and protect all the sons, and I don't know why. But you know what? Even though God spared my son, he did not spare his own. The thought of losing my son was too overwhelming to articulate, and my body is still in knots from the fear I felt, and honestly probably still will be until he's fully recovered. But God willingly gave his son for all of you. I hope when you think of this situation, you will also think of the God who loves you so much that he gave his son for you. I don't know. I, I don't know if I could say that. If that happened to my son. But God gave Angie the grace to look at this horrific situation through the lens of the gospel. This is a very real example of someone who is looking at 
horrible times through the lens of the gospel. And you know what? Her son still has a lot of healing to do. Times will still be hard for a while, but, but she is filled with hope as she reflects on the ultimate hope that we have in Jesus. I mean, this is exactly what makes joy indestructible. She texted me yesterday. I mean, the, the, the tone of the text was filled with joy, saying, it is amazing. God is using the situation to bless people. Early in my ministry, there was a young uh, 22-year-old kid who felt something wrong with his abdomen, but he was going to go on his honeymoon. And then when he got back from his honeymoon, he was going to get it checked out and have it taken care of. And when he got back from his honeymoon, found out they had terminal cancer and just a few weeks later he died before he died he was in bed my father-in-law called him he was a pastor and uh, actually he called the house hoping to get his wife Tanya to find out what hospital uh, Mike was in and uh, he thought Tanya was going to answer the phone but Mike answered the phone and my father-in-law said Mike you're home <laughs> and he said not yet but I will be soon. That is looking at horrible circumstances through the lens of the gospel. This is real. This is not a theory. I mean, nothing fills your heart with joy like this. Have you lost your joy? Paul says you don't have to. Joy is more than an emotion. It is a way of living and acting. It starts with a new direction in thinking, refusing to look at Jesus through the lens of your messed up heart in hard times, being determined to look at our hard times through the lens of Jesus. Everything else flows from this new direction in thinking. It gives us a, a resolve. It gives us a, a sanctified stubbornness to rejoice no matter what. A new definition of success, a powerful purpose for living, and a radical commitment to other people even in the midst of your worst time so what happened to Paul did he get out of prison was he executed we don't know sure from 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 scripture but the early church father fathers testify that he was released that he returned to minister to the church in Philippi and other places but then he was falsely accused and arrested taken to Rome and in prison and he was brought before Nero and courageously testified that Jesus is Lord not Nero and Nero found him guilty of treason and ordered that Paul be executed and Paul was taken by the soldiers and his head placed on the chopping block and when the executioner finished his job Paul got his ultimate wish. He left the presence of Nero and instantly entered the presence of King Jesus. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? I mean, picture going from your worst possible nightmare into a place that is so gloriously beautiful that is beyond your wildest dreams. One moment you're looking into the demon-possessed face of a crazed tyrant, and the very next you're looking into the strong and loving eyes of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Listen, this is critical for here and now, especially when it feels like the world is falling apart. If you know and trust the Lord Jesus, this kind of joy, this, 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 this ability to respond uh, to difficult times and have the perspective that, that, that Paul has, I mean, this can happen to you. 
And this ultimate joy becomes a reality even in the worst thing that can happen to you. Even at the moment of death. Why? Because to be absent from the body is what? Amen. To be present with the Lord. This is how we grow to be a community of grace. This is how we can be joyful no matter what. You look at your hard times through the lens of Christ. And when we do, we see a crown and we see a cross. We see a king with scars that should be ours and he is in control and we see that he loves us. And as a result, Paul tells us in Romans that nothing, absolutely nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you call us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. To remind us of reality. God, I pray that we would regularly look at, especially in the hard times, that we would look at life through the lens of the cross. The cross that represents the most horrible thing that has ever happened in history, the most horrible thing that will ever happen in history, the crucifixion of God the Son, because of you, it became the most beautiful thing that has ever happened in history. And if you could do that in the worst thing that has ever happened to us, or happened in in history, you could do that to the worst thing that happens to us. And we know that it may not be in this lifetime. We know that this lifetime is not all there is. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. God, I pray that you would renew our minds, that we would reason from from Jesus to our hard times, that we would look through the lens of Jesus at the mess that our life is, that the world is. Give us Give us clarity that you are in the process of turning everything wrong in the world right. Give us hope in that. Thank you that in your word, you declare over and over again, Jesus wins. In fact, he already has. God, I pray for everybody in this in this room that you would comfort them that you would make your presence more real to them than than ever before especially as they're struggling right now and maybe they don't even have this energy to struggle anymore help them to find rest in you And God, I pray that their joy would not be determined by their circumstances. 
thank you that you call us to worship you, to sing praises to you, to not only remind us of, of, of reality and to give us hope for the future, but also to relieve us of, of the sorrow <laughs> that plagues us in a broken world. Teach us, Lord, to view all of life through the lens of the cross. God, I pray if there's anybody here that has not, has never put their faith and trust in, in you as their king, as the one who is in control, who created the universe, holds it all together, and redeems all things, God, I pray this morning that you would... Uh, graciously give them the faith to trust you. Graciously give them the courage to follow you. God, fill their heart with a joy and a desire and a calling to live for you and to glorify you in all things. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that you would enable us to encourage each other as we point each other to Jesus. Pray that we would be a community of grace filled with joy. It reflects your kingdom, your promises. We pray this in your name.